Well, good morning. morning. It's good to be with you all at a proper time. I don't know who came up with this eight o'clock service nonsense, (laughs) but that was uh, good to be gathered with some earlier, but also good to be with you and gather around God's word. I want to begin uh, with a confession, and that is, uh, I think on our pastoral staff, I'm least qualified to speak to any of the issues of athleticism and running and bodily discipline that we'll be discussing this morning. So this passage has been making me miserable all week, Uh, but it has also been an encouragement. And as I was studying and preparing, I, I came across a reference that turned into an interesting rabbit trail that ended up in you watching like an hour long YouTube video of a professor speaking about you know how you guys have had this experience, right? Uh, in this case, it was about the, the Hopi people or the Hopi people, depending on how you pronounce it, of Arizona, which are world-renowned runners. And it was fascinating. Uh, the individual who was uh, giving this lecture, he is the author of a book on, on the subject of the, the Hopi people. Uh, the book is called uh, Hopi Runners, Crossing the Terrain Between American and Indian by Matthew Saskatewa Gilbert, Ph.D., and, and he paints the story of the early 1900s and this, this, this tribe that still was living largely intact in Arizona. And as a product of their environment were amazing runners. In fact, one person described running as their natural gait, like, you know, walking or, or sitting would be my natural gait. Uh, but running was their natural gait. And a lot of that had to do with their environment. They lived in these mesas, you know, and, and spent a lot of their life going either straight up or straight down to and from home. And, and they would work the fields that were out away from the mesa. And so if you walked to your field and worked it and then walked home, that was longer than you had daylight for. And so they just got used to you ran everywhere all the time. And, and given the dry environment, uh, the hills, the, the elevation, just all of this led to a, a tribe of unbelievably good long-distance runners. And in the early 1900s, they kind of exploded on the international running scene as these, these Hopi runners began uh, just destroying a first local and then national and then international running competitions until they were competing in the Olympics on the U.S. Olympic team alongside other famous names like uh, Jim Thorpe, for example, in the early 1900s. But then... This, this small group that had developed the ability to, to have incredible endurance and that, that, that ability carried them and their reputation onto the world stage, they all of a sudden came under this massive threat of seeing all of that erased thanks to the influence of the outside world. Uh, in an article entitled, Times Marathon Stars Fall for Buick Cars, written in 1936, Uh, There was this quote, they are known, speaking of these runners, for their long-distance running, whether the young men after contact with modern smoking, liquor, and other such white influences, and for those of you who are kind of on the pale end of the spectrum, doesn't that just make you proud of our cultural impact on the world, right? Smoking, liquor, and other such white influences, whether they will sustain this endurance is still is a question. Long may the Hopi run, but will he? And the answer turned out, in many cases, no. 
And their, their global dominance as runners actually began to fade considerably as it was much more attractive to join in with the, the raucous 30s of jumping in your car, driving to the next town, and going and hanging out and partying with all the other young people rather than running up and down to home every day. So you had this story, the early 1900s, the story of a people who understood the value of running hard and were making a difference in the world as a result. And then the story of the 1930s of a culture threatened by worldly influence and on the verge of losing its effectiveness and reputation entirely. And Paul, I believe, is dealing with a very similar concern in the church of Corinth. The question has been meat sacrifice to idols, introduced back in chapter 8, verse 1, and it's revealed this basic misunderstanding of the purpose of the Christian life. And Paul has been making this extremely long case and response, confronting what he saw as a shocking lack of love and care for the conscience of his of fellow brothers and sisters that he addressed back in chapter 8, and then using his own life as an example of laying aside his use of all of his rights and his independence so that he could better serve the purpose of the gospel in chapter 9, verses 1 to 23. And now he's going to turn to an athletic metaphor to continue making his point. The Christian life is not like an elite country club, Paul is saying, that you just join for its comforts and its perks. The Christian life, and our main thought this morning is this, the Christian life should be viewed as a fierce competition that we participate in and train for with all of our being. And so if you have your copy of God's Word this morning, let's read our text together. I'd invite you as you're able to stand uh, as we do read from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. We'll finish chapter 9 this morning. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 24. Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Would you pray with me? Father, even as we have just taken of communion, we were reminded of the sufficiency of your Son and what he has accomplished for us in making us children of God, making us indeed holy in our position before you and your judgment throne. And yet, Lord, we look at our lives and we see how much sanctification has yet to be accomplished, how much of our lives does not yet look conformed to the image of your Son. And we long, along with Paul, for our lives to be such a testimony of who Christ is that the gospel would be seen clearly through us and the work of the gospel could be accomplished among us and so we pray for your encouragement this morning to take hold of all that you have given us and to apply it faithfully so that we may run our race well for your glory and for the glory of our great King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I just mentioned, I think the main thought here is that the Christian life is a fierce competition that we should run in and train for with all of our being. And that's our basic outline, if you're taking notes this morning. And we'll begin by looking at verse 24 together and this idea of running to ensure victory. We run to ensure victory. Look at verse 24. Do you not know 
that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Paul's transitioning from where, from where he left off last week when he told us in, in verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel with his desire that he would become a fellow partaker or participant of it. And now he's saying, let me show you what that looks like. When I, I've, I've talked about how you, know, you, you contextualize the minister, not the message. I've talked about how the gospel never changes, but I'm strategic in how I reach the Jews and those who are under the law and those who are not under the law and the weak. And I'm, I'm constantly looking for creative ways to get the gospel to people. But now let me talk to you what it looks like for me personally to participate and train for gospel work. And he switches to this athletic metaphor that would have been very relatable to the people there in Corinth. Uh, there were two main cities in the ancient world that had regular massive games. We're familiar with the Olympian games. We still observe those today. The other major games in the ancient world were the Isthmian games. And that's just a weird word to say. Isthmian games. And those took place on the Isthmus of Corinth. And they occurred every two years in the springtime. Uh, Olympic athletes, Olympic caliber athletes would, would gather sometimes almost like as a preparatory thing for the big show in the Olympics to engage in foot races, wrestling, boxing, throwing of the discus and the javelin, long jumping. Uh, kind of unique to Corinth was the emphasis on chariot racing and horse racing because they, in Corinth, were dedicating the games to Poseidon, the god of, god of water, who was apparently also really interested in horses. Okay. Uh, but they also, and here's where, you know, some of us would have a chance. They also had poetry reading and singing. So, you know, there's a, there's a corner for, there you go. And Paul, interestingly enough, may have actually had kind of a close connection to the athletic world that was near and dear to his heart, because especially in places like Corinth, there were no permanent structures erected to be able to handle this massive influx of competitors, athletes, and their entourages. And so what they would do is go buy tents and set them up in all of these fields around the city, and they would live there for the months of training and competition. And what was Paul's trade? He was a tent maker, and so perhaps some of his familiarity with athletics came from his life experience. I mean, we know why he's familiar with soldiers, right? He spent a lot of time with them. Uh, but it's quite possible also that some of his most common customers were athletes coming in. Hey, I need a tent. Oh, really? What do you do? I'm a runner. Fantastic. Four hours later, you know, Paul is probably still talking to him about that. And, oh, yeah, you wanted a tent. Hold on. Let me go get that for you. So that may be one of the reasons why this, the athletic metaphor is close to the mind of Paul in his letters. And he begins by talking to us here about this picture of foot races. And he makes an observation that is uh, fairly self-evident. And that is that in each race, the number of winners is going to be exactly one, no matter how many people compete, right? If you're entering the race, no matter how, no matter how many competitors there are, only one gets to cross the finish line first. Unlike modern games, the foot races in the ancient world did not have silver. They did not have bronze. Just a winner. And the winner, winner would then would be crowned with a wreath in Corinth either made out of pine or, and I'm not making this up, dried celery. <laughs> Finally found a good use for celery. <laughs> Uh, sometimes we forget uh, that silver and bronze are not actually the goal of a race, right? 
They're not the goal of the race. The goal of the race is to cross the finish line first, to make it to the tape first. Uh, we have to sometimes remind some members of our family before we play certain games and, and can participate in certain activities how many people are about to compete. This many. How many people is it possible to win this one? So how many people should anticipate the likelihood of losing? Right? That's something you should know going into competition. There's only going to be one winner. In fact, in the 1996 Olympic Games, Nike ran an ad with one line of dialogue, and it was this, you don't win silver, you lose gold. That, that was their ad. And I think a, a modern response to that attitude was typified well with this top comment on the YouTube video of the ad. Because of this commercial, I have never purchased anything with a Nike brand name and encourage everyone I can to do the same. It insults every player that may not be first, discourages the idea of playing the game for the love of it and personal improvement. I think it was a callous misjudgment of what any competition is all about. I don't think that comment was written by an elite competitor, do you? Are there any other millennials in the room here with me this morning that have little boxes at home full of participation ribbons? <laughs> right, that's our generation. Gen Z is actually different. I want to make that point. But, but our generation, we're, we're the participation award ribbon. And I think we largely forgot what it was like to set out on a purpose determined to do your best because winning was the goal. And Paul is going to encourage us to recover that this morning. Because think about this setup. Paul's like, hey, look at, we all know how foot races work in the world. Only one winner. Everybody else loses. And if he wanted to have his opportunity to say, you know, let me give you a little bit of comfort and boost your self-esteem as Christians, though. Like this was his golden opportunity. This was where he could have said, you know, in the world, they compete so hard against each other. And after all that hard work, only one person gets to go home with the prize. How, how much injustice is there in that? That's not fair to people like me who are nerdy and have bad eyesight, right? We just need to encourage everyone. Enjoy the game of life. Take it at your own pace. Don't make anyone feel like they should go faster than they want to at any given time. Like that, that was Paul's opening. If that's the Christian attitude towards life. But that's not what he said at all. In fact, he says the exact opposite. Look at that. Given what is so self-evidently obvious about foot races, Paul turns to the Corinthians and says, Run in such a way that you may win. This jumps off the page a little bit because the last time we actually saw Paul giving any command was all the way back in chapter 8, verse 9, when he was telling us to watch out for the conscience of our brothers and sisters. And he's had all these points and all these arguments that he's been making, but this is the first time he's given us any command since then, and he just interrupts himself. Run! And not just like as an event. There's a way of saying, you know, hey, get ready for your race, run your race, do your best. But he says, keep on running all the time like you're trying to win. The goal of the Christian life is not participation in the race, but victory. We're not going for ribbons. We're going for results. I have a couple observations I want to make here before we get into how Paul trains himself for this kind of a lifestyle. And the first is both an encouragement and, an, and a caution about what this does and does not mean. 
Paul is calling us here to work out, not work for our salvation. And that's a really important distinction. Paul is challenging the Corinthians to work out their salvation, not work for their salvation. Because Paul knows everything ultimately when it comes to our salvation is decided not based off of our efforts, but based off of what Christ has done for us. He already laid that out so clearly in chapter 1 when he told the Corinthians, despite all their sin, but despite all their problems that he's been going through, that they have been made saints by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, who is confirming them to the end and will make them blameless in the day that he returns for them. So Paul is not here telling the Corinthians, watch out or you'll you'll fall out of this gospel race and you won't get to heaven. Once you are in Christ, he keeps you in Christ, in himself, to the very end. What he is describing is the same thing he was talking about to the church in Philippi when he told them to work out the salvation that they had with fear and trembling. Or as he would talk about to the church in Colossae, to labor and strive in ministry, literally agonize in ministry according to the strength of God. What does that look like? Well, Paul's been outlining it for us in this book. It begins by Christians knowing what the good news is and they're standing in it. That's what he spent so much of chapter one doing. What is the gospel? What is your identity in the gospel? And then learning to be obedient to the gospel, to submit to the law of God as he's been walking through with the Corinthians and confronting them on their sin. Also, it's living consistently with the gospel in all we do, not just staying away from sin, but proactively doing what we ought to be doing in all things. Paul's going to summarize that up for us in chapter 10 when he says, I'm even talking about whether you're eating or you're drinking or anything you do, every part of the Christian life needs to be in accordance with the glory of God, with the goal then that nothing would ever hinder and get in the way of the proclamation of the gospel both for winning people to Christ who don't know him and for building people up in Christ who do know him. That's what this race is that Paul is talking about. It's a life of gospel work, kingdom work, as we work out the salvation we have in Christ. And as Christians, I think we need to remember that that's what we're engaged in, right? We're not just in the waiting for heaven holding tank. Great, you're good to go. Just don't get into too much trouble until the ride's over. You've been invited as a Christian to participate in the work of the gospel going out through all the earth. And that's what Paul's challenging the Corinthians to. Hey, snap out of this self-centered desire to, can I eat this meat? And start asking the question, how can I run the race of gospel effectiveness in the city God has put me? And that leads to my second application in this section, and that is this. We should cultivate Christian competitiveness. Cultivate Christian competitiveness. Competitiveness, I think, sometimes rightly has earned a bit of a negative connotation in some circles because it can be very self-centered, and it can be accompanied by a really bad attitude. Right? How many of you guys have ever been to like, uh, you know, little kids' sports and been like, oof? And just looking at some of the parents, <laughs> or maybe some of us have been those parents, and you're just like... Yeah, that doesn't seem right. The desire to win has so overwhelmed that it's taken the place of like human decency. There's a jubilation at the destruction of the opponent. 
or a lack of joy and contentment with kids who are trying their best. And so it just turns into this ugly thing of yelling and gloating and anger. And that's not what Paul's talking about. But Paul's also painting a picture where the Christian life is not just like, yay, everybody's here. I'm just so glad we can show up and be ourselves. He says, no, we need to learn what it's like to go hard for things without leaving our Christ-likeness behind. And we need to remember what that looks like and cultivate that again, especially in a generation like ours that tends to either give up or make it all about personal glory and has forgotten what it simply means to, to look and say, what are the conditions of biblical success in everything that God has put me in? How do I biblically succeed in what God wants me to be as a mother, what God wants me to be as an employee, what God wants me to be as a neighbor, what God wants me to do in my hobbies with my friends, and what God wants me to do in my free time and with, with my yard and with my vacation time? And what, what does biblical success look like in those things? And then chase those things hard with the goal of winning, of representing the gospel well in every area. That's a, that's a great opportunity, I think, for us as parents to redeem and sanctify even things like board games and football, especially if we're parenting. <clears throat> our goal is not to remove our children from all struggle in life. Uh, don't, don't do that, please. As a youth pastor, Life will hit them hard, and they will not know what to do with that. But we have a chance, even in things like competition and sport, to teach them how to do their very best to win while still having love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And if they can learn to do that in the little things, then they will learn to do that when their boss fires them, and they will learn to do that when their neighbor keeps reporting them to the HOA, and they will learn to do that when there's strife among extended family members, and they'll learn to do that when they have health issues that come on them. They'll have learned how to chase what is right and what is good and what is winning without giving up their character. Shape those things as a Christian culture so that we can express those things and how we live life. Everything in our lives should ultimately be part of a thought pattern that we can trace up. I do this because of this, because of this, because of this, and there could be a long stack of things, but the last two things in the chain always need to be 1 Corinthians 8.23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. Everything in our life. And as I mentioned, this passage was beating me up all, all week as I was studying it. And it was amazing looking at my life to realize how much useless stuff I had filled my time with. And not even so useless because of what it was itself, but because when I thought about it, that did not fit at all into a strategy I had for the gospel and the glory of God. It was just filling space. And so for all of us this morning, that's a challenge. What dead weight are we carrying around in our lives? And we may find some of those things that are not actually connected to the purposes of the gospel and to the glory of God are those things that are actually exhausting us the most. So let's run as though we actually were trying to win. And then secondly this morning, Paul's going to describe how he prepares himself for that when he teaches us to train to prevent loss. 
Trained to prevent loss in verses 25 to 27. Verse 25 says this, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. In the ancient world, as Paul's writing, training was not a small deal. It was taken very seriously for the Olympic Games, and most historians believe also for the Isthmian Games. Isthmian Games? That's terrible. The expectation for every single athlete was a minimum of 10 months prior to the actual games, you would have to go and swear an oath to whatever deity the games were dedicated to, in the case of Corinth, Poseidon. And then for the 10 months, you had to devote yourself exclusively to training. That meant commitments that were dietary, commitments in what activities you could participate in the town and what recreations you could be a part of, how many hours you were expected to spend every day developing your physical prowess at whatever events you were going to be participating in. Ten months, and if at any point along that journey you were found doing something unbecoming to the oath you had taken of dedication, you were disqualified from participation in the games. It didn't matter if you won the wreath last time, two years ago, and you were the favorite front runner going in for the event this year. It didn't matter that you felt like you were already fast enough and strong enough. If you did not demonstrate 10 months of exclusive commitment to training, they said you are not worthy to even participate in the actual running of the games. And so Paul, when he's writing, writing this, the Corinthians know that. They know that's what he's talking about when he says, look, the world... The Corinthians, you guys know how this works. These guys train seriously for participating in these games. And they're just doing it for a reef, for celery. And Paul's making this contrast. He says, look, the world is willing to go to such incredible lengths, such complete self-mastery, so they can put celery on their head. And he says, Corinth, church, look at yourself. What are you doing? Are you going to be so undisciplined, so self-serving, so demanding of your rights and your comforts when what you're engaged in is of eternal significance? If they'll do that for celery, what will you do for souls? Because that's what we're in the business of, is souls. What is this great work that Paul is calling them to? What is this crown, this wreath that he tells them to look for if they are engaged in gospel work? Well, it's an interesting theme to trace throughout the New Testament. Paul, Peter, James, and John actually all like to talk about this wreath or crown, same word, that we will receive at the end of this life. Sometimes it's called the crown of glory, sometimes it's called the crown of righteousness. But it's interesting when you look at Paul's usage of this crown, because in his writings, he most closely associates the crown, not just with the rewards we anticipate at the end of our lives, but with the actual people he's been ministering the gospel to who will be there at the end. In fact, twice in Philippians 4.1 and 1 Thessalonians 2.19, he explicitly tells the Christians, you are my crown. You are my crown. Paul says, when I'm looking ahead to this reward that is waiting for the faithful children of God at the end of this race of the Christian life, 
that is inextricably connected to the souls that have been impacted by the gospel through my life's work and ministry. That's what it was for him. And so when he gets to writing Second Timothy, and he's talking to Timothy, and he's like, hey, my life is being poured out. I know I'm at the end here, but I have fought the fight, and I have finished the course, and now I'm ready to receive the crown. He doesn't just have in mind, hey, I did a good job. Now there's rewards waiting for me. He's looking back over the spread of his ministry, and he's seeing the faces of all the souls of people that he has had the privilege of ministering the gospel to, and his anticipation in heaven of seeing the fullness of that fruit. That's what we're about as Christians soul business. And there's no more higher calling, no more higher career with more eternal consequences than being about soul work. And in case you're thinking like, that's not fair, Mr. Pastor. We have a nine to five, bro. I'm not just talking about pastors. Christians are soul workers. He's not writing to pastors. He's writing to the Corinthians and he's telling all of them whether it is caring for your children at home and those souls, whether it's in your workplace and those souls, whether it's your neighbors and those souls, whether it's your golfing group and those souls, whether it's the club that you're a part of and those souls, whether it's the gym you go and work out and those souls, we're, we're living in a world full of eternal souls. And every interaction that we're having, we should be asking the question, how can this be part of the race of gospel ministry, showing what the gospel looks like and sharing the gospel with those around me. And I get it. That doesn't mean that you can, uh, you know, maybe you're a, tr- a truck driver and you can't just like pull over and like preach the gospel for eight hours because you're going to get fired, right? We want to be good employees. Why? Because that's what people who believe the gospel are, is good employees, right? We, we want to not just show up at our neighbor's door whenever we have a flyer to say, come to a church event. We want to show up at their door when we can bless them. Why? Because that's what good neighbors do. All of our lives, whatever sphere God has put us in, whether you're wiping dribbled milk milk off the chin of your toddler, or whether you're downtown preaching the gospel on a street corner, all of life can be folded up in this Christian race if we're doing everything faithfully for the sake of the gospel. And Paul wants to tell us then how he trains himself to do this. And so he gives us his his own life as a personal example again, beginning in verse 26. When he says this, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air. And he gives us two sample illustrations from the athletic world of the kind of intentionality that should go into our Christian training. First, he continues with the running picture, and he gives us this goofy picture of a runner who doesn't know where they're going, right? They're running aimlessly. And he's like, don't be that guy. Great form, excellent endurance, no clue where he's going. And I think Paul probably thought of himself a little bit in those terms when he looked at his past. Right? Paul was a Pharisee, somebody who had grown up loving the law, loving all the details. He didn't become a disciplined person when he got saved. Right? He was probably the most disciplined young man you ever met if you had run into him in his youth. But he didn't know what it was for. 
And that's what Jesus constantly kept chastising the Pharisees and Jewish leaders for. You're, you're straining out gnats, but you're swallowing camels. You're tithing all of your herbs and spices, but you're forgetting the weightier matters of the law. You're looking into the Bible to find life there, but you're forgetting that it's the scriptures that point towards me as the source of life. Paul was a, he was always a great runner. He just didn't always know where he was supposed to be going. And when the gospel finally was given as a gift to him and his eyes were open and he got it, he finally realized, I know what running is for now. I'm all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I give so much attention to personal holiness. That's why I give so much attention to sanctification. That's why I focus so much on obedience to the law of God, because I want to be a great runner moving in that direction. And that's what he's calling the Corinthians to as well. We can, I think, sometimes be overtrained and undercompeted. That's bad grammar. Christians. Overtrained and we have been underused in competition. I'll concede that there is a small amount of value to that torture device known as a treadmill. How many treadmill lovers do we have in the room? How many of you guys? Okay, it looks like most of you are on my side. Excellent. All right. right. A treadmill has its place in a training regimen for building endurance and for exercise and health and all of that jazz. But but there is, there is no great runner in the history of the world who has confined their running to a treadmill. If you imagine a marathon beginning and you've got everybody lining up in the whole mass and you hear this, ert, eet, ert. <laughs> what's that? This is my treadmill. What's that doing here? This is how I race. They may set the fastest pace. They may run for the longest time. They may have the best form, and they may look fabulous doing it. But they have a 0.0% chance of winning that race because they're not actually participating in it. And I think sometimes as Christians, that becomes a bottleneck in our life. We're reading all the books, and we're going to all the classes, and we're doing all the studies, and we're around all the right groups, and we're in all the right ministries, and we don't know our neighbor's name. Right? And, and we're indistinguishable from the world in our workplace. And, and we've, we're spending so much time reading parenting books that we don't have time to talk to our kids at home. I want to challenge us. And again, I'm not just talking to you. Look at my office. My office is equivalent of a Christian treadmill. Books everywhere. And I've been challenged. I need to be actually competing in the race more. Books are good. The training is, is vital, but it's for the purpose of the race. The second example that Paul brings up here is boxing. Uh, boxing is often viewed as a pretty brutal sport today. Boxing is a tea party compared to what it was in Corinth. It was a brutal sport in the ancient world. As best as they can discover, there were exactly two rules in ancient boxing. The first rule, no biting. Second rule, no eye gouging. Not no gouging. Gouging's fine. Just no eye gouging. And if you're wondering if they wore gloves, yes, they did. But they weren't the gloves that had pads in them like we have today. They were leather straps so that they could embed lead and stones and spikes onto their fists. The purpose of the gloves was not to prevent concussions. The purpose of the gloves was to destroy your opponent. 
And these were not up to 36-minute rounds like they are today. Ancient boxing matches regularly lasted up to four hours long of guys going at it. And it was, it was pretty brutal. We actually found a little potsherd with an inscription on it about a boxer, and his nickname was Fingertips because his strategy was to try to knock down his opponent early in the competition, and he would break every single one of their fingertips to give him an advantage, and that was legal. Paul says the Christian life can be like that. Right? The Corinthians had grown up watching boxing matches, and he says you're in one. Uh, sometimes the, the running metaphor as good as it is at teaching us endurance, can perhaps give us a false sense of like, it's a beautiful day, just keep running. And Paul says, no, sometimes life just comes at you, hard, swinging. Rather than running away, Paul says, the Christian duty is to engage and punch like you mean it. Now some of you here in this room uh, who know like how you're supposed to punch are like, yeah, let's do this thing. Who do I punch first? Where does the first blow go? Uh, Paul tells us, actually, if you want to know where to send your first fist, Paul says, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Look at verse 27. But I discipline my body, and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified that word discipline, some of your translations have buffet. That's a more accurate translation. The word is literally a couple of different words squished together, and it means to punch somebody below the eye. It was the word they used for giving somebody a black eye. Paul says, life is like a boxing match, and you have got to contend first and foremost with what will be your harshest competitor with the person that will be most likely to derail all of your gospel life and ministry. And no, it's not the world. And no, it's not sinful Christians. And no, it's not annoying people. It's you. So the first thing you do is you punch yourself right in the face. Until you wake up and realize this is meant to be a slave to that. I am meant to be completely dedicated to gospel work. And, and I confess, I don't like this verse very much, and I was really hoping, even looking ahead in Corinthians, a few of these passages, I was like, I really hope Ben gets those, because he's a naturally disciplined guy, and I'm not. Um, it's really hard for me to make my body my slave, because I prefer to view my body more like a strategic partner right? It mostly cooperates in helping me accomplish what I want to accomplish. And in return, then I mostly don't make it uncomfortable. <laughs> and so this was hard. This was hard for me because Paul's not just talking about spiritual maturity, right? He's talking about all of you maturity, disciplining his body, making it his slave so that there's nothing that will compromise his effectiveness for the gospel. Remember, he's not worried about making it to heaven. God's already taken 
God's already taking care of that. But he's saying there is so much in life that can threaten your ability to continue participating in the work of the gospel in an effective way. And chief among those obstacles is yourself. And I think we can see how that points back to his main topic. The Corinthians were most concerned about how much they could get away with in their culture to enjoy social comfort and acceptance and good food. And Paul says, just keep punching yourself in the face until your brain's full attention is directed back to the mission of doing whatever it takes to see the gospel succeed in your city, Corinthians. Train hard, run hard. That's the Christian life. So what does that look like? Well, let me close us this morning with a couple observations that may be helpful in getting going. But I want to start off by saying there's no good formula. Uh, These are great things for you to talk about in your life groups. I'll pitch that again later in a minute as well. But the first is this. Know what you are about. Know what you are about. We can't race well if we don't understand the race we're in. We don't want to be Christians forever stuck on the treadmill, but we also need the treadmill. Right? We don't want to be Christians forever reading rule books, but we need to know the rules before we can compete well. And so have the expectation that this Christian life that you're living, it is a race, it is a challenge, the stakes are high, there are rules, there are goals, and we should know those. And whether that means next week, maybe you say, hey, next week let's go to one of the Sunday school classes that takes place this hour, and, we'll, and then we'll worship in one of the other services. Or maybe you're saying, hey, there's a, there's a book that I, I've been, you know, a, a brother or sister in Christ shared this book with me that said, hey, this is really helpful in understanding how God's word applies to this area of struggle in my life. And I don't like reading, but maybe I'll just get over that and read it because I want to know what will actually be helpful. Or maybe there's an older saint in this church that I can go to and talk to about this issue because I want to make sure I know what I'm about. Or maybe you're a new believer and you're just here and you're like, I, I, I'm like that, that child in, in 1 John, the new believer in Christ. I, I know God's my father and I know my sins are forgiven. And, and that's about it. And I don't know what to, where to go next. That's where we all start. What's your strategy? What's your plan? How are you going to run the next step? Know what we are about. Secondly, and related to that, don't train alone. The Christian life is not a solitary endeavor. We're all competing shoulder to shoulder here. Yes, that's another plug for life groups. Life groups and more and more. The Christian community ought to be this web, this network of relationships. And, and here's a convicting thought that I've been thinking through and I would challenge you with. Think about all the people you spend a significant amount of time with over the last, say, month and ask yourself how many of those conversations in some way were an encouragement towards effectiveness in living out the gospel in life. Not necessarily in sharing the gospel, though that certainly would be part of it, but how many of those conversations encouraged or equipped somebody in my life that I care about and I have a relationship with in some way to being more effective in running the race? And it was kind of embarrassing for me to realize how many conversations and and fellowship times I'd had that weren't really Christian fellowship. They were just hanging out and the opportunities that were missed. Don't train alone. Next, prayerfully push yourself more than you think you can. This one's potentially dangerous because this is the one that people who need to hear it don't listen to and the people who don't need to hear it will kill themselves for. But for many of us, if we're being honest, there's a lot more that Christ can do in us than we're willing to let him. Uh, This has sometimes been called the 40% rule. A famous billionaire, Jesse Itzler, was in this 100-mile race once. Uh, He was part of a six-man relay team taking turns running this race and he 
That's, I guess, what billionaires do because um, they're bored. I'm going to run a long race. Uh, as he's going along, he meets this, this large feller who comes through. Uh, and he's like, you do not look like the normal runner. <laughs> he's like, hi, I'm, I'm Jesse, what was his last name, Gibbons, I think? Uh, yes, I believe it was Jesse Gibbons. Navy SEAL, turns out. Starting to make more sense. Talking to him, he says, oh yeah, I'm running this race. Oh yeah, who's your team? I don't have a team. I am the team. I'm going to run the full 100 miles. As a Jesse estimated, about 260-pound guy. Those are not your long-distance running types who had already broken all the small bones in both of his feet from the race thus far, who was also dealing with kidney damage at that time, and who had a a birth defect that resulted in a hole in his heart that prevented his heart from oxygenating his blood properly, so he had severely compromised endurance. When that guy successfully finished the race, a hundred miles down the road from where he started, Jesse said, come live with me for a month and tell me how you do what you do. And he said, well, a lot of it's pretty simple. It's what I call the 40% rule. I've discovered for almost everybody, the point where their brain says, I can't do any more, I'm done, is when they've reached about 40% of their current capacity. Not of their future potential, but of what they could actually do in the moment. And so he said the secret is basically being willing to take one more step, one more step, one more step. And I think for us as Christians, there are areas of our life where we say, wow, my brain is just telling me this is too much. And my culture is telling, you, telling me, yeah, you better, you know, you need some me time. And maybe it's time for us as Christians to evaluate our lives and say, okay, where have I built walls? Because God builds walls around us with his providences, right? Uh, if you have certain health conditions, you're probably not going to be an athlete for Jesus. God builds providential walls around our lives, but often we build our own walls way inside of those. And we miss out on the joy of maybe the 60% of gospel ministry that God would like to do through us if we're willing to say, I'll take one more step and see how God provides. What does that look like in your life? I don't know. That's a great thing to talk about in your small groups. Can you push yourself too hard and make it all about you and make it a self-serving thing? Sure, don't do that. But in our culture, the biggest danger is not that Christians are running the race too hard, but that we're hardly running the race. And I'll leave us with this. Help train others. Do that, but never at the expense of quitting the race. And just I want to close with a call to the older generation, and as the music team comes up to close us in song. After the 1912 Olympics, uh, the the Hopi runners went home and uh, one in particular Tawanama met his friend Philip who was also an Olympic qualified runner who said hey I think I'm faster than you <laughs> let's race in front of our tribe 12 miles said okay they show up at the race they're all wearing their track gear and they start getting heckled by the elders of the tribe basically you guys look ridiculous dressed in those white man's track out forms how are you supposed to run in those goofy shorts that sort of thing well the two young athletes got annoyed so they finally call him out and said, you guys, you old guys think you're so fast, why don't you get down here and prove it? So two guys took him up on it. And, and the, the youngest estimate I could see was that they were in their late 50s. And they come down and stand beside these two young men fresh off of the Olympics, in the peak of their lives. And they say, okay, ready, set, go. And they take off. Six miles down the road, those two elders had so outdistanced the Olympic athletes that the two young men quit and conceded the race. 
And they kept running until they got to the 12-mile line. And they decided they were having so much fun, they were going to make a day of it. And so they kept running until the sun went down. We have people like that in this church that can run all day. And I want to encourage you, would you please never stop running? But come up alongside some of our young bucks and our young lasses and say, I haven't made it to the finish line yet, but I've been running a while. You want to go for a jog with me? That's how we will make sure that the race doesn't end with any single generation, but that this church keeps running until Christ returns. With that, would you stand? And we will close in song.